Amen. You can be seated as you do so. Mosaic kids, you can head out. Follow our friends in the yellow shirt. See Miss Antonia in the back. She's waving. Um, and if you are looking for a seat in the back, about 30 of them just opened up down front. Um, and it's not a splash zone, you know. Um, I don't do a lot of spitting when I'm preaching, so uh, you should be fairly safe down here. Um, but you're welcome. But you're also welcome to stay where you're at. You can open up your Bible to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 44 through 50 this morning. John 12, 44 through 50. Anyone ever suffered the heartbreak of a broken promise? Is it just, it's just me? It's not a universal part of the human experience? Get your hands up. Anyone ever suffered? Yeah, okay, all of us. We, we've, we've had our hearts broken with a broken promise. That's, that's a kind of a part of just living life in a broken world. Um, I really try to be sensitive to this kind of impact with my daughter. You know, when I want to convey to my daughter the seriousness of the promise that I'm making, we'll make a pinky promise. I get on her level, I look in her eyes, and I say, listen, Daddy will not break his promise. I'm not going to go back on my word. But as much as I want to keep this forever, I know there will be a day when I break a promise. I know there will be a day when I let her down, and I'll have to ask for forgiveness. Over these last four Sundays, or two, last two Sundays, and today and next week, we'll be looking at the promises of God, namely the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's people. Today, the promise of God's purpose. What are God's purposes in the world? What has God promised that he would do and that he will do? And these four Ps, presence and people and purpose and place, it's how we talk about the whole story of Scripture at Mosaic, that God is determined to have his people delight in living their whole life in his presence to reflect his purposes in his place. Those are four Ps that we use to talk about the whole story of the Bible, and we're talking about them during a unique season, which is the season of Advent, the season of Advent, a season where we step into remembering and rehearsing and practicing something that we don't want to do ever, which is waiting which is waiting, and and not just any kind of waiting, but we try to remember that the world waited for the first coming of Christ and that today we wait for his second coming, that we're maybe not too dissimilar from those people who looked forward in longing expectation for the coming of the Messiah because we too as Christians are looking forward to the coming of the true king and the better kingdom. Now listen, Israel... They might have had some good reasons to distrust that God would keep his promises, right? They had been through a cycle of failure and rejection. And when many of the promises of the prophets are given, they're in exile. They're not in the land that God had promised to give to them. God's presence doesn't dwell in the temple. The temple has either been destroyed or ransacked or they've been removed from it. And so there is some reason for Israel to doubt that God is going to keep his promises. I don't know if you know this, but that little one page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we sometimes call the intertestamental period, was roughly 400 years of silence. 400 years of hearing the voice of the prophets reverberate and echo over exile. A king is coming, a rescuer, a savior, a hero. And in all of those 400 years, there were trials and tribulations. There was exile, there was death, there was bloodshed. Israel maybe had reason to begin to distrust God, looking at it in worldly terms, looking at the the manner of their life. And in the same way, it can be easy for us to begin to doubt God's promises. 
When our circumstances change, when things get hard, when trials come, it can begin to raise a question in us, which is that is God going to keep his promises? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe at the end of this year, that's where you're at now. Is God going to be faithful to keep his promises? And today in John 12, 44 through 50, we ask this question. Has God kept his promised purpose? And will God keep his promised purposes? So I'm going to look at John 12, 44 through 50, and I'm going to read it for us. And then afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. We want to give thanks for that. So let me read, beginning in John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, just a little bit of context for this passage, since we're not doing a deep study of John right now. Jesus, at this point, has already entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. The triumphant entry has already happened. He's encountering a bit of a mixed bag among the people. It seems like their celebration might be souring. There's some level of confusion and unbelief and certainly uncertainty among the people and among the disciples. And this passage that we just read, it is spoken really on the eve of his betrayal leading to the crucifixion. So that's where we're at in the story of Jesus. And in this passage, we see three purposes. And if you're a note taker, maybe you want to write these down. Because I think these are the three purposes for which the Son of God has come and for which the Son of God is coming again. All right, you ready? The first one, the Son of God has come and is coming to reveal God. The Son of God has come and is coming to reveal God. That's, That's the first one. We'll explore it in just a minute. The second one is the Son of God has come and is coming to break the darkness. The Son of God has come and is coming to break the darkness. And the third one, the Son of God has come and is coming to save the world. To save the world. So let's explore this. The Son of God has come to reveal God. The first two verses, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. What is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, talking about? He's saying, listen, God the Father has sent me into the world with a mission and with a message. And fundamental to that mission and message is to reveal who God is with a startling level of clarity and specificity, right? Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now, He has spoken to us in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of his nature, all the fulfillment of the voices of the law and the prophets wrapped up in Jesus Christ. You see, the Son of God was sent by God the Father to reveal who God is and to reveal what God is like. 
To see the Son of God in Jesus Christ, to read his words and to see what he does, is to see the character of God the Father on display. And this is a part of the wonder of the incarnation. It's a part of the miracle of Christmas that God doesn't leave us in speculation about who he is. That God doesn't leave us with questioning. He removes the uncertainty by telling us, this is who I am. And he does it in flesh. He does it incarnate. He does it in a way that makes sense to us. He doesn't just shatter the heavens with a glory that blinds us. He sends the Son of God incarnate so that we might be able to see him, to hear him, to touch him, to engage with him. Why does God do this? Well, part of it is because when we think about God's promises, God had promised that his people would dwell in his presence. And like we looked at in John 1 a couple of weeks ago, the Son of God incarnate is the embodied presence of God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The Son of God brings the presence of God into our midst. He shows us who God is. He shows us what God is like. He's a demonstration of the heart of the Father. And this is what the Bible is telling, and nowhere is it more clear than in the Son of God, Jesus. This is called Revelation. Not the book of Revelation at the end, but the doctrine of Revelation, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, reveals who God is. He discloses who God is. God is not trying to keep us in a mystical hiddenness. He's telling us, this is who I am. This is what I say. This is what I do. Like an author who writes themselves into the story, at Christmas, we remember that God wants us to know who he is. That may seem just obvious to us. Have you read a lot of other ancient stories? Because it's not common for the gods, anciently understood, to have a vested interest in you knowing who they are. The Christian story stands out in stark contrast with other ancient stories because this God, he doesn't try to constantly hide or obscure or deceive the created world with a false pretense or a mask of who he might be. He, he actually tells us. He, he shows us in himself. This is the beauty and the wonder of the God of the Bible. Maybe you've had this experience before. Maybe you've been in an art gallery. Maybe you've been in a cool coffee shop and you're looking at a piece of art. You're looking at a painting and you're like, I don't get it. Have you ever had that experience? You're like, I, I don't really, I don't understand. And then you look at the price tag next to it and you're like, <laughs> not in this world. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. Uh, you're trying to figure out what's going on there. What is the artist trying to say with this? Like, like, what's this thing about? You listen to a song, and you have asking, what are they trying to communicate here? Um, I'm probably going to regret this aside, but a week ago, I was having a dance party with my daughter, and uh, the playlist cycled to Who Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> Has anybody else ever just found themselves wilding out to Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> it holds up. It's fresh. Um, <laughs> after dancing with the so- uh, to her with the song, she, she goes what's that song about? I was like, I have no idea. Um, so I did some Googling, okay? And I went down, you've been, you guys have been through a Google black hole. 
So don't look at me like I'm the only idiot that does this, okay? So I went down deep, okay? And the songwriter, a guy named Anselm Douglas, gave an interview, and he explains the meaning of the song. You're not ready for what I'm about to tell you. Whatever you thought the song was about, th- th- you did not think it was about this. The song is a song mocking men who catcall women on the street, who catcall women in public, who, like, make commentary on their looks, you know, like who whistle at them. I, I did, was not prepared for that. I got to tell you, I've probably heard that song 5,000 times, and never once I think it was a commentary on anything, let alone that. Um, and it made me think, wouldn't it always be nice to just have the artist around being like, okay, now what's really going on here? Let me tell you what this means. Let me show up and talk you through it. And when the Son of God enters the world in the incarnation, it's the artist entering the work and explaining it. You know, it's removing the speculation. It's kind of pulling back the veil and saying, you know, I know you kind of were trying to grasp at it. I know you were looking for what's going on here. Let me tell you. I can tell you because I was in the beginning with the Word, and I am the Word. I was in the beginning with God, and I am God. Let me tell you what's happening here. The Son of God came into the world to reveal God. It's one of the central purposes of the incarnation. Another of the central purposes is the Son of God came in to break the darkness. That's why we light the candles during Advent. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, all throughout the Gospel of John, you're getting light and dark themes. It's in John 1, it's all over uh, the Gospel of John, and here we find it again. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into the world in order to break the power of spiritual darkness. Now, what is this darkness? The spiritual darkness. What what does he have in mind? Does he have in mind that he's going to shatter the night? That's not really what's going on here. Does he have in mind that he's going to remove earth tones from the palate? No, that's not what's happening here. No, the shattering of spiritual darkness is the breaking of sin, death, shame, the rule of Satan. That's what it means to shatter the darkness. And this is one of the central purposes for the incarnation, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, comes into the world to break the power of spiritual darkness. In John 1, we heard, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Listen, I don't think I have to convince anyone in this room that the world is dark. I really think, I think everybody in here would believe that. I think everybody in here would agree that the world is dark. But I do believe it's far easier for us to see the darkness out there than it is for us to see the darkness in here. It's far easier for us to believe that the world is a broken and dark place than that our hearts are a broken and dark place. At least it's easier for me. The prophet Isaiah, looking forward to the day of the Messiah, said, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then we get this this phrase that you're familiar with. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, for thousands of years, the world waited for a Messiah, a Savior, a King, who would come to bring his people and the world out of darkness. And this is exactly what Christ 
has come to do. This is exactly what Christ begins in his first coming. Christ has come to break the power of darkness in the world and in your world. I think that right now, maybe it's as tempting as ever before because of access and because of exposure for us to constantly rationalize the brokenness in our lives and our homes against the extreme brokenness that we see in the world. Well, it's not as bad as that. It's not as broken as that. It's not as ugly as that. And for us to constantly make a bargain, trading and bartering with the world, and what happens when that becomes norm is that we don't experience transformation in our own lives and we can't be agents of transformation in the world. If we're not prepared to reckon with the darkness in our own lives and hearts, we will not be equipped to reckon with the darkness and brokenness of the world. Transformed people can transform, right? We have to be prepared to let the light of Christ break upon the darkness of our hearts and shatter its power before we can go out into the world as ministers, priests, and prophets of the power of Christ to shatter the darkness of the world. The Son of God has come to reveal who God is. The Son of God has come to shatter the power of darkness. And the Son of God has come to save the world, which is good, good, good news. Verse 47 through 50, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, if it just stopped there, it would be half truth. But he goes on. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Christ has come to save the world. But from what? What has Christ come to save the world from? Well, yes, Christ has come to save the world from the power of spiritual darkness, from sin and shame and Satan and death. But there is another for whom Christ has saved the world from. And it's a part of the story of Christmas, but we don't... We're not as eager to talk about it. Christ has come to save the world from the judgment of God. Christ has come to save the world from the judgment of God. Now, I know it doesn't feel like a Christmas message. And honestly, it's not. It's not a Christmas message. It's an Advent message. It's the time between. Christ has come to save the world not just from sin and shame and death, but from the judgment of God against sin. This is the judgment that we stand underneath by nature. We enter in to the house of this judgment just by entering into the life of the world. But Christ has come to bring us salvation. And you may go, but, but well, hold on. Doesn't Christ say, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it? This is true. Christ has come to save the world. So then wherein does the judgment remain? Because that's the tension of these verses. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Well, hold on. Well, then who does? But he says, on the last day, the word that I have spoken will stand in judgment. Jesus Christ is talking about the tension between the first coming and the second coming. 
this reference to the last day as a reference to the last day, not just the last day of Christmas, not just the last day of Jesus' life, but it's an apocalyptic phrase. The last day means the last day. It means the day of the coming of the Lord. You know, it's the end point. It's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, regardless of what you think about the last days. It is the day where Christ comes again in the fullness of glory and power to take upon himself not the sin of the world, but the inheritance of the world that he has redeemed. And all are invited to receive the words of Christ now. Everyone even if you can't pay, even if you don't have anything to draw from the well, even if you don't have any resources, even if you have no standing, if you're blind, if you're lame, if you're an adulterer, if you're a murderer, if you're a thief, in the time of invitation, who can come to the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Anyone. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Son of God can look at the thief on the cross and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, the good news of the time between is that the Son of God has come, and because he has come, anyone whom the Father sends him, he receives gladly. But the time of invitation, there is an end to it. The Son of God has come to be the word of God in flesh and to speak the words of God that we might receive his invitation. But the reality is that for those who do not receive the invitation of the words of the Son, there will be condemnation by the word of the Son. That's the tension here. That's the reality of the season of Advent. And like we've said before, like Fleming Rutledge has said, always is Advent and Advent is always. What we do in these four weeks is really just a, just a little snapshot of what life is meant to be lived like all the time as we're caught between the tension of the first coming of the Son and the second coming. Yes, the first coming of the Son of God was for the purpose of bringing salvation. But the second coming of the Son of God is for the purpose of bringing judgment. And listen, we are clear. We want God to be a holy judge. We just don't want him to be a holy judge of us. We want God to be a holy judge. There are things in this world that anger you, that are wrong, that are evil, that are immoral. And you and I want God to be the holy judge that he is. We just would rather be left out of his judgment. But holiness and the fact that he is Lord over all means that while salvation is available to all, judgment is coming to the world to refine, to repair, to restore, to redeem. What does this mean for us? It means that the time between the first coming of Christ His first advent, his first arrival, and the second coming of Christ, the second advent is a time of invitation, an opportunity to come to Christ, to experience rescue and salvation from God's holy judgment against sin. That's what this is. Advent is a reminder that we're stuck between stations, that we're caught up in the space between, and the king is coming, the king is coming. 
The Son of God was sent into the world from God the Father. A perfect father who never breaks his pinky promises. God doesn't make pinky promises. He makes covenant promises. They're unbreakable. They're unshakable. They're unchangeable. And he does not fail to deliver on fulfilling all of them. He comes to proclaim those promises, to speak the word of the father, but also to secure the fulfillment of those promises in his own self. And Advent is a reminder that God has chosen to redeem, restore, renew, and rescue the world. That God the Father sent the Son of God into the world in order to recreate the world, to remake it. And that we are invited into the kingdom of his beloved Son, the kingdom of light. But that this invitation has an expiration date. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard. No one knows the coming of the Son the Father. The time is determined. A time is coming when the period of invitation will end. Christ will come again and bring covenant judgment. All that is wrong with the world will be dealt with for good forever. All the broken places will be mended. All the wrong things will be made right. God is going to do this work and we want him to do this work. And we are in between looking back on what has happened, looking ahead on what will happen, and how do we know God will keep his promises? Because he has. Because he has. God has kept his promises. God will keep his promises. In his first advent, Christ revealed the words of the Father. In his second advent, Christ will reveal the glory of of the heavens. In his first advent, Christ shattered the power of darkness. In his second advent, Christ will remove the very presence of darkness. In his first advent, Christ has secured the salvation of his people. In his second advent, Christ will restore the world fully for good forever. And in this space, in the always advent, we are invited to live our lives in God's presence and to reflect his purposes to the world. Because the Son of God has not merely demonstrated the heart of God the Father in revealing God, in shattering the power of darkness, and in saving the world. He has revealed how we are to live with God, which is to be agents, people, proclaimers, who proclaim who God is, mirroring the revelation of the Son, who go into the dark places of the world and bring the light of Christ to bear on them like the Son of God has done and will do. And that we would be people, people who cannot save the world, but people who proclaim that salvation has come in the Son of God, Jesus. We live now in the light and life of Christ as we have seen it, knowing that what is coming is more of what he has already done. Christ has come. Christ is coming. And we say, Maranatha, Lord, would you come? Would you pray with us? Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless us in this Advent season with hearts that are primed to experience a level of holy desire that is often dulled or dismissed. As we have prayed before, God, would you give us a holy discontentment with lesser desires, and may you drive us into a deeper imagination 
for the coming of the Son of God, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.